Deeper Than Most. I'm your host, DJ. And I'm your host, Sam. And what do we got today? Today we have a short stuff bonus episode. And we're going to be covering FNC Park 31, which takes us to New Mexico. Today we're going to be talking about the West Mesa murders. Um, and we also do not have a DON for today. So we're going to jump straight into it. But before we do, I think it's... Uh fair of us to say we haven't really been uploading lot well we haven't uploaded last week because we were so busy with school and work and, and just life living yeah things get hectic and i feel like oftentimes we are juggling a lot on our plates and sometimes plates can fall <laughs> and um this, this past month or two the podcast plate has been stumbling and fumbling so we're back on our a game and next week, we got some fun shit, you know, in store. It's the kickoff for our Halloween episodes. Yeah, so let's go ahead and get into this case. Um, this case, there's not a lot of details about the victims, for one, and also just how all of this took place, like what actually happened. There really isn't a lot. Um, it all comes down to the discovery of remains okay so on february 2nd 2009 a woman walking her dog came across a human bone and that human bone was a femur um this bone was found in a 100 acre lot near 118th and amole mesa avenue southwest this bone would be the first of so many more to be discovered this case has ended up as one of the largest crime scenes within u.s history which is crazy to believe but imagine that though walking your dog and you come across a human bone once the femur bone evidence was found investigators quickly hopped on the potential in the case after the initial bone finding police worked the crime scene for approximately two and a half months i think all that time spent working the crime scene really shed light on how big of a crime scene it was right, right. i mean they were covering so much land discovering all of these remains even with bone evidence found the police had no answers they needed to identify a victim and a killer this took one year for police to identify all 11 victims within this case the bone belonged to a woman but that finding would not be the end of this discovery only the beginning so now we're going to look at some details to continue on and get into the backstory. Police have been able to build very detailed timelines of the woman's last known whereabouts, and they had interviewed about 200 women working the streets in connection to the woman's remains who were found. The women questioned about the crimes working the same streets as the victims around the time of their disappearances. With this, the cops were able to compile suspect timelines as well. So it sounds like... As police were doing their investigation, they were in the area of where these remains were found, questioning women who were on the street. I don't know what led them to initially just, I mean, I guess, like, searching the area, just walking to local places, just asking people who frequent the area yeah. um, if they know of anybody who's missing or, you know. Yeah, yeah I would say that. But it's just weird how... I don't know, the way cops view sex workers in these cases, it's just not oftentimes the best. They're not 
seen in the best light. Um, And it definitely shows with the way police officers describe these victims and the way that they speak on them. Um, And you'll get a little bit of that when we do get into who the victims were. Yeah, I can definitely agree. I I think the the viewpoint that cops and even society have on these type of women or when they come across cases like this, how they tend to throw it in a certain box is definitely messed up in a sense. But I do think it's a decent first start, like going around the local area asking if or like who's missing or if anyone is missing. So there's that aspect of it. But I do agree whereas it is messed up to just categorize it as one thing when it could be something else completely exactly mid-2005 albuquerque police detective ida lopez noticed that women who had ties to substance abuse and prostitution were vanishing from albuquerque with this ida started a list with 10 of the 11 victims on it they were monica candelaria cinnamon elks veronica romero victoria chavez Michelle Valdez, Virginia Cloven, Julie Nieto, Evelyn Salazar, Jamie Barella, and Doreen Marquez. All the women were found on the Mesa in 2009 along with Celiana Edwards, who had been reported as missing in Albuquerque. That's a lot. A lot of victims, a lot of women, mothers, sisters. Um, I'm not a fan of these types of cases that we cover. Um, I don't know. It just seems like a sad ending to a sad life, if that makes sense. Um, Street life is hard, and it's not something to joke about. It's not something to play about. I think we've mentioned this before. It's just not fun and games. Just to continue a little bit more with the backstory, while discovering the remains of these women, investigators dug into the victim's past with hopes in finding a connection and that connection being the killer. Most of the women knew each other and had big personalities and were mothers and they were all loved. Now with that, we're gonna get into the first couple of victims. First one being Jamie Barella, who was 15 years old. She was last seen with her cousin, Evelyn Salazar, age 23, and they were headed to a park at San Mateo and Gibson Southeast in April of 2004. Neither of them were ever seen again until their bones were discovered in 2009 in the Mesa. Jamie had no known prostitution or drug arrest, and this is something that all of the women's descriptions had was like if they dabbled into street life activities. Um, and clearly that was based off of like police investigation and their interpretation of it, um, which is just very interesting. Like you said, they categorize them as being something. It's like, okay, if you're on the street, you have to be a prostitute or a drug addict, you know? And that's not always the case. The second was Monica Candelaria, who was 21 years old. Police began investigating her disappearance in 2003 when her friends claimed that she had been killed and buried on the Mesa. She was last seen near Artisco and Central in Southeast Albuquerque. And Monica enjoyed laughing, jokes, babies, and family time. She's remembered as a loving daughter, mother, granddaughter, niece, cousin, and friend, and she is truly missed. The third victim is Victoria Chavez, 
age 26 and her bones were the first to be identified. Um, so I'm assuming that the femur that was found was mm. hers. Yeah. Her mom had reported her missing in 2005 and she had been on probation and was a quote unquote known drug user and prostitute. Once again, according to police, there is no known information on her last known whereabouts. So her story is just, it feels incomplete. That's always so sad though when you hear that part of it where it's like, oh, we found some evidence, but then you don't hear anything else. You never hear like the rest of the story, it just cuts there. Yeah. yeah. It is sad. Or you find remains, right. but there's nothing, there's no story behind that. How did this person end up in this situation? What was their life like? Who was this person to the core? Yes, it's oftentimes we don't get that from the victim side. To continue on, we have victim number four, Virginia Cloven, who was 23 years old. She grew up in a small trailer home in Los Chavez. She was funny, loved makeup, and was popular in her school. In high school, her brother was killed, and after the fact, things weren't the same for Virginia. She and her brother ran away from home at age 17. She ended up living with her grandpa in Albuquerque, then with a boyfriend. Her boyfriend got hit by a car and ended up in a coma, leaving Virginia without a home. Her family last heard from her in 2004, sometime around June. In October that same year, Virginia's father reported her missing in the hopes of finding her safe and sound. Sounds like she went through a lot. Yeah, very tough time too. At such an impressionable age, victim number five is Celiana Edwards, who was 15 years old. And there are no known friends or family in her situation, but she was a runaway from a foster care in Lawton, Oklahoma. She was the only black victim, and she never knew her dad and last saw her mom when she was just five years old. The police believe she was a circuit girl, meaning she traveled along I-40 corridor for street work. Investigators also believe that she may have been traveling in a group and was not alone on the street. A tip came through stating that she was seen in Denver around the spring or summer of 2004 at a motel located on East Colfax Street in Denver. This area was well known for high profile prostitution. That's crazy, like to be traveling yeah. from all, the, all of these places. Um... It's very interesting. I don't know, just the way things work. I've never heard of a circuit girl. I've never heard yeah. that term. I've never heard that term before either. Very um, interesting. Yeah. Um, so those were the first five victims of this case. How are you feeling so far? Um, right now, it's very tough. It, it's sad because all these victims are so young and their lives have just been taken and stripped away. Yeah. And they were all loved, you know. And what, and what's weird about it too is because the remains of these women were found, there is no cause of death. We don't know what happened to them. Um, and along with that, we don't know who did this to them. But with all of that being said, now we're going to take a moment to thank our sponsor. And we're back. So we're going to continue listing off who these victims were um, and a little bit about their story. So our sixth victim is Cinnamon Elks and she was 32 years old. 
She was the third set of remains to be identified, and she was also tied to the street lifestyle and was confirmed to be friends with at least three of the other victims, those victims being Gina Michelle Valdez, Julie Nieto, and Victoria Chavez. And that's all we have on Cinnamon Elks. Victim number seven is Doreen Marquez, who was 27 years old. And Doreen loved jewelry and fashion, and she was known to have a huge personality. Her hair was always done, and so were her nails. She always looked beautiful, said her friend, Frederica Garcia. Doreen had no known prostitution arrests, according to police. Um, and even with that account of her friend just saying how she was always a beautiful girl, always kept up with herself, like, these were real people, and... They had people in their lives who cared and, about them and loved them, um, regardless if they were involved in the streets or not. The eighth victim is Julie Nieto, who was 23 years old. She loved chili peppers and jump rope. At some point in her youth, she joined Job Corps. And if you don't know what Job Corps is, um, yeah, it's basically like an in-house like living situation where it's kind of like, um, vo not vocational school, but... It's not college. It's basically like trade school where yeah. you learn various trades and, yeah. um, you know, actual like manual labor type of work and jobs while you're living there. It's usually an option for teens or youth that are living in poverty. Eleanor Griego, which is her mom, said that Julie began doing drugs at 19 years old. Eleanor tried to help Julie seek help and treatment, but ended with no success. Her mom last saw her at her dad's house when she was 23 in 2004. And by her dad, I mean Eleanor's dad. This was Julie's grandfather. And Julie left behind a son. The ninth victim is Veronica Romero, who was 27 years old. And she was reported missing by her family on Valentine's Day in 2004. Her family was able to lay her to rest in 2009 when her remains ended up being one of the 11 that were discovered. Victim 10 is Evelyn Salazar, who was 23 years old. She was reported missing on April 3rd, 2004 by her family. She was the 10th victim to be positively ID'd, and her 15-year-old cousin, Jamie Barella, was the final victim to be ID'd. The two women were last seen together at a family gathering and had went to a park after on San Mateo and Gibson. Evelyn liked camping, outdoor activities, and she was a great cook. She had a daughter who she had taught to roller skate. Victim number 11 is Michelle Valdez, who was 22 years old. Michelle had a daughter and a son who she cared deeply for. Michelle was known to have a big heart, and she was very kind to others. In February of 2005, her father, Dan Valdez, reported her missing. Her remains were the second to be ID'd. The discovery also uncovered the remains of her four-month-old unborn baby. Her mother stated that Michelle dreamed of one day becoming a singer or a lawyer, following the footsteps of her aunt. That was it. That was the 11 victims of West Mesa. And now we get into the theory of a suspect. While trying to unearth the truth behind these murders, investigators gave out vague descriptions of who the killer could be. The only descriptors were someone in prison, a military man, and a pimp. July 2009, Police Chief Ray Schultz announced that the cops were down to five suspects. 
Months later, he said there was only a handful left. Whoever the suspects were, cops never had enough evidence to charge them with anything. In 2014, KRQE 13, which I believe is a news channel, named Lorenzo and Joseph as two who haven't been ruled out. Police confirmed that just a year after. So I believe that came out on the news that there were two suspects who haven't been completely ruled out and police just came with that confirmation a year after the fact. Um, they stayed silent for a while, but I believe it's because they were probably investigating into these men. Yeah, before they show their hand. So The two who weren't ruled out. The first is Lorenzo Montoya. He was killed in 2006, and at the time, police were already looking into his connection to missing women in the area. He would cruise the area and was known to be violent. In 1999, detectives watched him pick up a sex worker near Central and San Mateo. They followed him to a dead-end road near the airport. Police believe they caught him in the act of trying to rape and strangle her. He never planned to pay her and only had $2 in his wallet. $2. In December 2006, he invited an escort to his trailer home and killed her. She was bound by her ankles, knees, and wrists with duct tape and a cord. The woman's boyfriend came looking for her and shot and killed Lorenzo. The body was found outside his trailer, partially wrapped in a blanket. And by the body, it was the body of the escort, not of Lorenzo. Yeah. So, assuming the boyfriend, when he came looking for her, he saw the body, like... Outside, like it was partially wrapped up, so I'm sure there were parts exposed. Her legs and wrists were wrapped in duct tape, and a thick layer was found around her neck. An unrolled condom, pillowcase, and her belongings were in the truck of a rental that Lorenzo had. Pretty, pretty damning. And, I mean, he didn't even get to serve time because he was killed, which, that's fine, too. That's justice in some sense. The boyfriend who killed Lorenzo, he did claim that it was self-defense, um, but hopefully it wasn't, and hopefully Lorenzo was scared in his last moments, yeah. you know? The second suspect is Joseph Blee or Blea. He was on police radar a week after the first discovery of remains when his girlfriend told police to investigate him, um, and that's kind of like all that we know from like right then and there but he is currently serving 90 years in prison for sexual assault 90 years in prison for sexual assault you had to have been doing something um and furthermore his dna was once found on the body of a dead sex worker from 1985 though he was not charged with this so i don't know how he got out of that but he did Police knew him well and had run into him about 130 times from 1990 to 2009. Well, was, That's a lot. Well, he was just out in the open just doing shit. Yeah, like 130 times? Are you kidding me? That's crazy. He was known to stalk sex workers in the area and once exposed himself to a worker he had lured to his car. When police arrived to investigate the act, they found that he had rope and electrical tape in the vehicle. He reportedly spoke about the case while in prison, saying he paid the girls for various services and talked poorly about them, calling all of them trashy. Um, so, uh, supposedly, he was speaking about the West Mesa murders mm. in jail and bragging about 
you know, mm -hmm. committing these horrific crimes. So that is the story. That is it. That's the case. So there's not much, but there is a lot. Yeah. Damn. And also, those two guys... <laughs> Very questionable men. Yeah. Fuck questionable. Like, yeah, I'm glad they're off One the streets, both. both of them, One in different both. ways. One or both. Oh, yeah. That's what I was thinking, too, doing the research. I was like, what if these motherfuckers were, like, in it together? Yeah, one or both of them, for sure. Because I'm sure frequenting, or frequenting the same area, doing the same thing all hours of the night, you, you guys are probably going to run into each other, too. Yeah. So, yeah, I had those thoughts as well. Um, but now we're going to transition into the wind down, then some kind words, and lastly, some support. So the first wind down is, how does this case make you feel? One word to describe your feelings after knowing all about this case. I would say after knowing all about the case, one word that could describe how I feel right now is confused. Okay. Valid. I would say this case makes me feel frustrated. Wind down number two. Will this case ever see the likes of proper justice? Um, at this point, I don't think so. I don't think it will. I agree. Um, and too many lives lost in the process to uncover the truth. And the truth is still nowhere to be found. And I don't think it ever will be. Just especially with the huge lack of evidence. Like, we don't even know how the women died. And I don't know. I feel like that would help. That would tell a lot about who the person was that did this. Or the people that did this. Um, so yeah, there's just not a lot to go with. And with time just continuing the past, it only gets harder and harder. So yeah, that's our wind down. Now, for some kind words. What about you? What do you have for this? My kind words are take the time out this week to do something that you're passionate about. No matter what it is. Find something that you're passionate about, whether it be something that you love to do as a child as a teen, even something that you just recently picked up and you haven't done lately, pick it up. Yeah. Pick up something you're passionate about this week. Pick up a passion. I like that. I like that. I would say my kind words are, let it all go. Sometimes shit gets hard, but like you got to let that shit go in order to grow and process new things. So let it go. I like that. So, how you could support the show. Thank you, everybody, for getting us to 1K on Instagram. Uh, but yeah, follow us on Instagram at Deeper Than Most PC. That's short for podcast. If you're new to the podcast and audio version, we also have the shit in video. So check us out on YouTube at Deeper Than Most on YouTube. This is a short stuff bonus, and because we didn't upload last week, we do have a full-length episode going up this week. So that means that this week is a double upload, and this is the first of two. So we hope you guys really enjoy this, and we hope that you learned something today with this case. 
And with all of that being said, I've been your host, Sav. And I've been your host, DJ. Stay light, stay bright, stay positive. Catch us next time on Deeper Deeper Than Than Most. Most.